Hello and a very warm welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. Today, live from the Happy Place Festival in Tatton Park, I'm chatting to Nick Grimshaw. When I was writing the book, like I couldn't write it, like I couldn't sit down and focus. And I was like, surely this is the easy bit because I'm just writing about what's happened. And it was like spiraling again, being like, how did I do that, go from Oldham to doing The Breakfast Show? And now I can't sit in my kitchen and write it. It's something that it was when I left Radio 1, I was really trying to discover and explore, like, is that it? Do you have like one dream? Do you have like one ambition in your life? Or can you keep evolving and changing and setting new goals, big or small, and achieving them. Nick was on Radio 1 for 14 years. He'd always, since he was a kid, wanted to present the Radio 1 breakfast show. It's a coveted spot, and he did it, hugely successfully. He achieved his dream, but in 2021, he made the decision to leave the station, prompting him to rethink what his life looks like. Part of that process was reflecting on it all in his autobiography, Soft Lad, which I have to say, just like this conversation, is both laugh-out-loud funny and incredibly thought-provoking. As I said, we had this chat with all of you gorgeous lot at the Happy Place Festival just last week. Oh my God, the sun was blazing. It was dreamy. I'm so grateful for that sunshine. And I think this was the most full the talk tent got all weekend. Everyone was sort of bursting out the sides of the tent onto the grass, sat on beanbags and deck chairs to listen in. It was amazing. So thank you so much for being there. And if this is the first time you're hearing this chat, I hope you really enjoy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Okay, here it is. This is the show. Everyone. It was further away than I thought. Sorry. It takes forever to I wasn't get on the doing stage. a dramatic entrance. No, no, it's there's I've had so many yeah. awkward moments on this stage, I can't far, tell it? you. It's a long yeah. way, but we're glad you made it. Well yeah, done. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I mean, you are obviously from up north and I you am. had said to your family, do pop along. They but declined. Yeah, they did decline. My mum was like, oh, it's 50 minutes. So they're the other side of Manchester, and it's United Arsenal. So that ruled out everyone yeah. else in my family, unfortunately. Don't any football fans start walking out to try and like find a telly? We're you're locked in now. Like yeah, you're here now. You're here <laughs> I don't now. want everyone to be like, oh my god, it is. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> See ya. Um, we obviously are really used to seeing you at music festivals and loving gigs, but I have a feeling, or I hope, mm -hmm. that the Happy Place Festival is a bit of you because you actually love wellness. Yeah. You I love do. it. I do. And it's only something I've only recently got into over the past couple of years. And some of that drives my boyfriend mad. Like he's not on board no, with wellness. No. At all. Or even like a glass of water. Right. Like he's not into it. And neither were my family. Like my mum and my dad would be like, my dad was always like, You're mad for water. Yeah, my parents. Why do you drink like that? that? Mm. And I was like, just to stay alive. Just to, yeah, generally fill myself up yeah, with like water. Yeah, like they wouldn't do it. But I do, I do, do, I do, do wellness. <laughs> yeah. So I do it in many forms. I love exercise, which is something that I never thought that I would like. And which I didn't start doing until I was about 31. <laughs> Genuinely, like never did it at school. Never did it when I was younger. And now I have to do it. Or I, like what? I do weightlifting. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> Don't laugh. I do weightlifting and, and in quite a, 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 you know, serious weightlifting gym. Very, I can imagine it's very serious. Yeah, well, I don't doubt yeah, that. Yeah. Although Henry Holland does go there. So. 
Not that serious. Okay. Um, it's quite a chic yeah, weightlifting gym. Yeah, it's quite a chic one. So I do weightlifting. Um, I just started yoga. I always used to do yoga when I, when I lived um, in my flat in North London because I had a friend who was a yoga teacher on the same street. Heaven. So I'd always go over to hers and do yoga. And it's when I was doing breakfast. So I was always tired and I'd always fall asleep on a kitchen floor. <laughs> and she'd just leave me at the end. I've uh, seen a lot of people asleep at the festival yeah. today. Just having a really yeah. lovely, yeah, nodding, lovely little kip on your yoga Love mat. Well, that shows that you've done it well because you've really surrendered. So yeah, I get into it. And then meditation is something that I never did until lockdown. And, you know, we were like, what yeah. can I do so I don't lose it? <laughs> it's like, everything. Everything. So I did a meditation course with your friend of mine, Rob DeBank. Love Rob. Um, and Rob did like an online course where he said, you can come on, get on Zoom. It'll be three days. We do every morning and every night. And I'll teach you how to meditate. So I logged on. And then there's other people on it. So I thought it was just going to be me and Rob. No, you're not that special. <laughs> But there's like all people on it, yeah. like 20 people. So I was a bit like, oh God, because it, it's quite a, you know, I, I thought it was going to be quite a private matter. No. But it wasn't in the lesson. But um, I, I was, I, I loved it. Like my yeah. first experience of meditating with, with Rob was like mad trippy and I got really into it. He's so good at what yeah. he does. He was at our Chiswick Happy Place Festival. Grimmy and I know him because he was at Radio 1 for years. An amazing DJ, but has done so much brilliant work in the meditation space. He does Yoga Nidra. He's on our Happy Place app. And he also runs his own festival, Festival, Camp Festival, which is incredible. He's a, he's a wonderful man. Yeah we, yeah, we love Rob DeBank. There's a section in your book which we've carefully placed for everyone to see here, Nick. Uh, Soft Lad, which I loved reading. You've got a chapter called Wellness When Unwell. Yeah. And I really was fascinated by that because I think sometimes we talk about wellness in a way where it's like, oh, it's a nice little thing to do on the side. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think the thing that we've got in common with wellness is that we've really needed it. There have been times when there hasn't been another option. You've needed to make a change. And in that chapter and throughout the book, you talk about a sense of self-loathing that you can easily slip into. We all can. It's something that we all... You know, it's a terrible negative spiral we can all get into. What was the point when you thought, I'm bored of this, I can't do this self-loathing anymore, I need to make a change? I mm, maybe once I got into my 30s, I think my 20s, and I think actually when I was a teenager, and I don't know if it was like a geographical thing or like a time, maybe it was an 80s thing or a 90s thing, but I was never, uh, I, I never had the inkling that I had to think about myself or how I felt and whether or not something was good for me or bad for me or if you know I should sit and think about how I feel or maybe drink some water mm -hmm. like I never that never entered my mind and then I think when I went into my 20s I just ran into my 20s with that same mentality of just not really thinking about myself or about my self-care or about any sort of wellness and then when you get into your 30s and you start growing up and you start realizing what's important. And um, I think it was probably like, yeah, early 30s where I was like, right, maybe I should stay in. Yeah. Um, and maybe I should like spend my time trying to feel better rather than like trying to seek something at a party that in turn is going to make me feel worse. Yeah. Maybe better if I like stayed in and got robbed a bank on the phone. You know Correct. I, think? I, think, I can't remember exactly when it was. But it's something once I saw like a glimmer of feeling better through doing different various roots of wellness, that it just became invaluable and it became essential and something that I really prioritize now and put so much time and effort into. I guess there's two parts to it always. There's the bit where we can have a little matcha latte and we can do a bit of yoga and all the things that we know will probably help us feel a bit more in balance and slow the hell down because we're all moving so quickly. But then there's the other bit, and it's perhaps harder to focus on in a festival setting. I think we've certainly tried. It's certainly terrifying to focus on internally or on your own. And that is the bit where you've got to like yourself, mm -hmm. where you've got to forgive yourself, where you've got to make peace with bits of yourself that you're not so happy about. Where are you at with that? I think that's like a constant process because I think there is you're right the wellness of like a turmeric latte mm. but then there's also like 
therapy. Yeah. So like not as fun no. as a latte for Instagram. <laughs> so, but much more nourishing. Yes. You know, like so, you know, definitely more nourishing, but just like harder. And I don't know, like facing up to yourself and figuring out who you are. I don't think I ever really did until I got into my 30s. And um, then I was like, wait, I've been carrying like shame and like gay guilt and like sort of not really liking myself when I was a teenager and I've never dealt with it. So you can't get that from a turmeric latte. Sadly. So I had to like go to therapy and, and talk it out. And I think it's just about being kind to yourself. I was just chatting to Jono. Just... Jono Lancaster. Anyone watch Jono Lancaster's yeah. chat? And we love Jono. He was just talking to me about self-love and, you know, like growing up in Oldham, I, I couldn't be like, I want to love myself. <laughs> like, you. You should love yourself, especially. <laughs> so, I don't know, it's, it was quite a hard thing for me to get my head around. And some days I'm really into it, and some days I think it's really hard, and it aches me out a bit. And I think it's like a constant journey where you've got to get that balance of being kind to yourself in whichever way that is, you know, speaking to yourself nice or getting sleep and rest and not, you know, looking for external validation from somewhere which is not really important. So it, I think it's quite an ongoing, it's like a practice. Do you know what I mean? I don't think you're ever like, I'm done. No, no. I'm happy inside. I no. think it's like a constant thing. I think especially with liking yourself. Yeah. It's, it's all day, every day, forever. And there'll be periods where we do find it easier and times, especially, I don't think it's like any worse for us, but I think especially in our job, where sometimes the feedback can be negative, which I think anyone in the public eye has experienced on a level. If you're feeling pretty good and you've got that equilibrium and you're like, I'm actually quite liking myself at the moment, or I've made, there's a certain element of peace. It can only take one crappy Instagram comment to just extinguish that in an instant and it is quite hard to then pick yourself back up and do all the work again like start believing that you know you're all right as you are it's tough yeah. it is and i i can really spiral really quickly like i could have one bad day at work where i don't think i've done my job good or i've been and filmed something and i was like oh it was rubbish that and then i'll like spiral for a week being like i should withdraw from life <laughs> like and, I, and it's serious i really yeah. go hard on myself and then I'll hear a week later from the person that I work with being like that was the best day at work I've ever seen you yeah and I'm like really because I have hated myself for seven days so yeah you just gotta like keep reminding yourself and keep on top of it like I yeah. said I think it's like a daily practice to to not and, and also to cut out the things that make you spiral you know like I can't watch anything like too dark or Same. like I can't do it. No, no, I don't watch. I, I watch documentaries, yeah. funny stuff. David Attenborough. David Attenborough. I can't handle. But yours is very specifically rooted in a childhood experience. Yeah. So tell us about Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, so I got really traumatised by Edward Scissorhands. And um, yeah, my, I basically was like the youngest in my family. So I had an older brother and older sister who were quite a bit older than me, like 11 and 13 years older than me. And I idolized them and loved them. And then so all my cousins were, you know, 12, 15 years older than me. And I loved my cousin Lisa. And still do, I've not gone <laughs> Loved. Loved. Until <laughs> this day. Um, and uh, our Lisa took me to see, and she was fab Lisa, because she used to wear like leather jackets and like dyed her hair black. And she had like posters of all like heavy metal bands. Like, it was quite, I imagine, quite a bedroom for you, that. Yeah, I would have loved that. You would have loved that. I would have loved that, sadly, like, in my 20s, not my teens. <laughs> That's the worrying thing. Yeah. And she had, like, she was, she was cool. Like, I thought she was really, really cool. And she'd, like, go to, like, rock world. And, like, she took me one night to see Edward Scissorhands. And I was really excited. And um, it, it just, it terrified me. Like, absolutely hated his face so much mm. with a passion. And I, I was like traumatized by it. And I remember watching the film and leaving with Lisa and cause she had a leather jacket on and like black dyed hair. I was a bit like, <laughs> she's a bit Edward Scissorhands. Hey, Edward. And I went home and I couldn't sleep and I was freaked out by it. And my mum and dad were like, oh, it's a kid's film. Don't worry about it. 90s parenting. You'll be all, it's all right, we're having a party, get upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, um, and they were like, oh, there's nothing. It's fine. It was a kid's film. And I think it was a PG, maybe. or like PGs were so different to PGs a today. A PG was a loose. I've watched some stuff with my kids and halfway through gone, nope, it's not appropriate. Mm. What was it? Ace Ventura. Don't watch that with your kids. Really? Oh, my, oh my God. In my head, innocent, sweet the little... detective. Yes. So rude and inappropriate at times. I was like... Oh my God, I'm so sorry, kids, but we're halting it here. Oh, we are not watching this. No, we are not. Let's put Zootropolis right back on. Get that back on. Yes. Well, I needed Zootropolis. You did. I watched Edward Scissorhands and it was just, he just like creeped me out. I, I thought, I thought I, I quite liked being around adults and I, and I loved um, watching films and watching stuff with mum and dad. And I'd, I think I'd never, I'd only experienced, since I was like seven, just like lovely things like mm. joy and like my mum's friend Carmel's quite funny and nice. And then Edward Scissorhands, because he was in quite a suburban setting where I grew up in Oldham, it, it looked like my street. And then I couldn't really read him. You know, he was a bit like, <laughs> like, couldn't really, it was a bit like a spider, like, you know, you don't know what, where they're gonna go. Yeah. Like, a bit like, it icked me out, and it was, it wasn't like the story, it was just his face. And I got so traumatized, it went on for weeks. Into adulthood, though. Months, and then years, like, yeah. years of not being able to sleep. And even when I was doing like nighttime radio, I had to sort it out when I was like 27, because it was when I started doing the breakfast show. And I was like, I can't be scared. Of Edward Scissorhands. Of Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Because it's been 20 years. And um, I, I just thought that I was like under attack constantly. Mm. And it came from being scared in my bed at seven till nine, where I was like, you know, sweating and traumatized. And like any noise, I like couldn't sleep. So I was like stressed out for two years. And when my dad were like, oh, that's where soft lad came from. Because my dad was like, a bloody soft lad. It's only bloody Johnny Depp. <laughs> and I hated it. And I just like never really dealt with it. And then I was like, wait, I'm scared of everything. Yeah. And everyone. So I need to figure that out. But you did that by re-watching it. Yeah. So I watched it in lockdown and I'd never been able to watch it. And I watched it one day in lockdown and I was like, right, it was on. It was on like Channel 4, Christmas time. Yeah, nice and festive. And it was like four o'clock, by the way, not a kid's film. No. Um, and I put it on and I actually found it um, really heartwarming and kind of life-affirming in the story, in the film, and how I connected to Edward Scissorhands, the character, because he was someone that when I was growing up through my preteen and teenage years, I felt very out of sorts in a suburban setting where it was all heterosexual families, like mum and dad and two kids. And I knew probably from like nine or 10 that that was never going to be me and that I knew that I was gay and coming to terms with it. And so I don't know if I, the fear of Edward actually stemmed from me being like the odd one out in a community. I don't know if it did, but when I watched it as an adult, I was like, oh, hang on a second. Edward is the one that everyone's like, he's a bit weird in this community. And that's how I felt as a teenager. I felt like the odd one out. I felt um, strange. I didn't feel, you know, in the same world as everyone that was around me in my family and my friends at school and everyone in my suburban street. And I sort of realized that when I watched it recently and I had that connection for him. So I sort of made peace with him and realized that the Edwards were all the people that I've like connected to. Like, all my friends are a bit Edwardy, And, like, you know, he's just... He's not, not wrong with him. He just likes a leather catsuit, you know? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Let's not be judgmental. No, he can wear a leather catsuit. wants to wear foundation, eight shades too light for him. Exactly. And an all-in-one PVC suit. With some black contact lenses. With some fine. black contact lenses and scissors for hands. Absolutely Let's fine. Let's let him live. Let's let him live. Yeah. But it is really nice that you had that sort of revelation. And also, yeah. but I wonder, can you, because I'm, I really, really don't like watching anything remotely scary <laughs> or triggering. Same. I'm like a sponge, so I take Same. on everything. Yeah. And I either walk away thinking I'm the person who I've just watched, I start acting like, so if I watch something really angry, I'm a bit aggressive and angry. Or if it's something scary or whatever, I, there's no way I'm sleeping. Yeah. So I just don't watch any of it. And I'm really niche about my viewing. Have you expanded your viewing or are you still I, quite picky? I am, a, I am quite picky. I've got to be in the right frame of mind. So I, I do get anxiety bouts from time to time where I'm like really highly strung for a few weeks. 
And then when it's that time, that's the David Attenborough. Yeah. That is like something really nice and yeah. relaxing. Um, so then I can't watch anything like too spooky. And like Luther. Couldn't, no, couldn't no, no. Love, love you, Idris, but no. No, can't ever do that. Um, I went to my therapist once and was like, I, you know, I said that. I said that I am a sponge and I soak it up and I don't know if it's like a good thing or a bad thing because I can really feel... If like Mish wakes up and he's in an eggy mood and he's stressed out about work or on a stressful work call, then I'm really stressed about Same. his work call that I don't even know what it's about. Yeah. So then all day I'm like, well, wow. <laughs> like, why am I bothered? I am so bad. And she like taught me to sort of like be in myself and to sit in myself and do breath work and like get out of here and like get a bit more in here. So that's definitely helped. Yeah. Saying that, also, she said, I said, and when I watch something, it makes me scared and it makes me really anxious. And she's like, don't watch it then. And I was like, oh, yeah. Glad I just paid you. Uh, yeah, here's 50 quid. Thank you for that. Great oh, Brilliant. <laughs> but on the way here, actually, I've just got into, because I couldn't watch it when it came out nine years ago. I don't know if you've heard of this little show. It's called Narcos. Right. I thought, let me give that a go. Haven't seen it. Too yeah, scary. Too scary. Too scary. Well, I've managed to watch episodes one to seven. Fine. You were right. I watched episode eight on the train, a little bit too much. Right. Yeah, let's turn it off. So let's watch some David Attenborough, something yeah, about a novel, yeah, just yeah. to like get the balance yeah. back. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Where is your anxiety at today? Because it's something, again, that is threaded Literally the today. <laughs> It'd be today, but just generally around now. Because it's something that has obviously, you know, you've teetered on the edge of it at times, and in childhood you were maybe, like, experiencing some of it. How do you manage it? How prevalent is it? And how does it show up for you? I remember the first time I got it, and I wrote about it in the book, and I'd, I'd never... It's quite hard to explain what anxiety is, and if someone doesn't have it, they're like, don't, just don't, be anxious. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'd not thought of that. No. <laughs> I actually like inflicting this hell on myself. So <laughs> what you're saying is just don't be anxious. Oh, my thanks. God. Thanks. So it's quite hard to explain it. Yeah. And also it was quite hard to explain it when you're first experiencing it. And I think I did experience it as a kid and that word just didn't exist. And I just didn't know what it was. And I remember going to university, like, the first time I lived on my own, like, away from my mum and dad. And... Um, like feeling like calling my mum and being like, I've got this like feeling that someone is about to come into like the classroom at school and say, you know, when someone says like confirm cotton, go and say, and you're like, Ugh. yeah, or like someone's gonna like push me off a cliff, and I don't know what it is. And my mum was like, oh, you got anxiety, and I was like, what's that? And she was like, well, <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you. So I think I started having it around uni and sort of didn't have it like that bad. And then it sort of comes in and out of anyone that suffers with anxiety will know just whenever it feels like it. Really. In the worst possible yeah, times, Yeah, worst possible actually. times, yeah. yeah. Um, or sometimes I get like a, a, a sort of to the day sort of, it remembers it. It's like, oh, you hate January. Right, yeah. Let me make it worse. Yeah. So it's like January, February is like usually like quite a gnarly time for me. But I have to, like, really manage it when I can feel it brewing. And how would you do that? So I would do it by not drinking at all. Yeah. So I've sort of done four months or five months of no drinking every year. Love. Like an not right now. Don't not clap right now. yet. Because yeah. that might not be true now. Not true right now. But, but dry <laughs> festival. Dry festival. Dry festival. I love that. And love. I never thought that I would love Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think when growing up in the 90s, I think, like, drinking and... Drink culture, or for me it was, the people I looked up to, it, I thought it was the only way, and that is just so brilliant. Like, the Gallagher's, or like, Scary Spice falling on the floor. I was like, brilliant. 
And it was sort of like actively encouraged by like the magazines that mm -hmm. I read, like The Face or Vice magazine. I was just like, oh, so what you do is you get to 18 and you get like blackout drunk, brilliant. I could do that. And it was sort of became like this aspirational, validating sort of, um, I don't know, like route that I went on. And then actually when I grew up, I realized I was like, oh, actually, it gives me horrible anxiety. It makes me make bad decisions. It makes me probably like not a nice person. I lose all my ambition. I like probably not that good of a friend or like a family member because you like hungover and forgetful and like anxious and like self-obsessed. So I just like really, really probably at about 30, 31, like really thought about my relationship with alcohol. And over the past, I'd say like, yeah, six years, if not longer, I've done, yeah, four or five months where I just like, don't do it. And I do that whenever. And then I might do it like, you know, August to Christmas or last year I did from like, I drink when it's Christmas day and then I drank on New Year's Eve and then I didn't drink till like May. So I sort of just do it as and when. And how do you find the reaction to that? Because I mean, I've actually had sort of some smaller group chats today about this exact subject and how obviously in the UK culturally it's totally encouraged that to mark a moment, to celebrate yeah. that you have a drink or even if you go out on a night with your friends there, is usually someone, if you say you're not drinking, that goes, oh, don't be boring, come on. It's my worst thing. The worst. And yeah. there, is, there is that sort of pressure. So especially in <clears throat> the work that you've done over the years and going to gigs and being in that whole music scene, how have you navigated that? Um, I think, it, do you know, that is my worst thing when people say don't be boring. Oh, or people I hate go, it. why? What's wrong? Yeah. And I'm like, well, nothing's, well, stuff is wrong, but yeah. don't want to get into it at a gig <laughs> with you, a stranger. No. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, I think, I think how I navigate it, I just say, it, for me, it's easy just to stop drinking completely. Or now I'm at a stage in the past five years, definitely, or six years, I can go and have like a drink because I'm like, I actually can't be bothered explaining this to 10 people at dinner. Yeah. So sometimes I'll just like have a glass of wine and drink it and that's it. And then no one even notices it. Whereas sometimes if I say, I'm not drinking, 10 people are like, yeah. why, what happened? And you're like, oh no, nothing. Why are you not drinking? And I'm like, oh, so sometimes it's easy just to like have one and deal with it. But then other times I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do it. And I'm quite happy now in saying I don't want to do it. And I don't want to do it because I've got like work on or I'm happy to say, I don't like it, it gives me awful anxiety or I don't like feeling hungover. And I'm quite happy saying that, whereas years ago, I'd have never have said that. No. I mean, I was thinking about this when I was reading your book. I don't know what year it was that I met you, but it was obviously in the thick of that time, probably for both of us. I was, I don't know if I, I was probably at Radio 1 at that point, and I remember seeing you at, I think it was a kooks gig. Some, sounds about right, Very isn't it? Very of the time. Very of the time, right. early noughties. Yeah. We both had horrendous hair. Yeah. And... And I remember that, that scene and that pressure. But also what I'm really interested in, when I was reading your book, certainly, about that era of your life, is I'm deeply fascinated at looking at moments where you could call it luck or you could call it actually making your own luck and finding those opportunities. And you can see in this book, and I obviously I know you relatively well, but I learned a hell of a lot about that era of your life. And you made all of your luck. And yes, there has to be a certain amount of serendipity and timing, but you made the decision as a teenager or maybe early 20s to move to London on your own. You did not know a single person. You were reaching out to the Queens of Noise, who are two brilliant DJs who are you know, prevalent in that era on that scene, and started chatting to them and asked if you could stay with, in one of their flats. You were calling MTV. You were actively putting yourself out there. Do you think that is just part of your personality? Because I, again, I've spoken to lots of people this weekend about this subject of, yeah, I want to, I want to write a book, I want to do this thing, but how do you start? What is the start point? And looking at that era of your life, you seemed completely proactive without knowing anyone, with a lot of risk taken. Is that just inherently part of who you are? Do you know what? I think it's, it was funny sitting and writing the book and, and thinking about that time in my life because. I worry now I'm older, that sort of fearless ambition it goes. is gone. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, was that, was that, is that like my ambition 
I don't know, shot, is that like now, did I use it all? Like, is that gone? But yeah, when I was a kid, I was really, didn't know what I wanted to do and I loved music and my brother and sister were quite good in guiding me in that they had, you know, proper jobs and I loved music and wanted to do radio and loved the radio, like loved listening to the radio. And they both quite encouraged me to be like, don't be, my sister's an accountant. She's like, don't be an accountant. Do what you want to do. Like, please go and do what you want to do. She's like, it's boring. <laughs> and my brother was like, go and do it. Go and do it. So I think they sort of encouraged me to do it. My mum and dad were like, don't do it. Go and please go. Please be an accountant. Please be an accountant. <laughs> um, and then, I, I don't know, I, I, I couldn't, I was, I didn't really, um, like, I didn't excel in anything at school. Like, I wasn't very good at learning or revising or paying attention or having focus. But the only thing that I was really good at and focused on was, was radio and music and sort of talking to people at parties that my mum and dad would have or dinner parties that my mum would have. So I thought, maybe I can do this. Maybe I should go and do radio. And I just remember being um, probably, I, I set that intention really young. Like I was probably like 12 or something where I was like, I want to do it. And then I just thought about it, never said it out loud. And I remember saying to my brother's um, girlfriend at the time, when I was doing my GCSEs, I was like 15. And she was quite inspirational to me in that she had a cool job and she just like, she worked in like graphic design, which I'd like never heard of in Oldham. And, I just thought she was like a cool person who, who did cool stuff. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. And she was like, don't you want to do the radio? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And I sort of talking myself out of it. And I remember her saying to me like, why don't you want to do it? Why couldn't you do it? And I said, I don't know. I think it's kind of like too big a dream. And she was like, like what? And I said, well, it's a bit like saying, oh, I want to be a footballer or I want to go and be an astronaut. And she said to me, well, people are astronauts and people are footballers, so figure it out. And I remember being like, yeah, that's right. There are astronauts. <laughs> but I remember that like as clear as day. And I was like, she's right. Like I should just go and do it. So I, I just, I didn't know how to do it. Like I applied for student radio in like the area, but there was like one in Oldham. I applied for like work experience at the two radio stations in Manchester, did it in one, the other one didn't write back went to uni, did student radio, wanted to do the breakfast show because I thought that was the, the biggest show. Terrible idea at university because students are asleep. Oh. So no one listens. Right. Um, but I just did it and practiced and, and um, no one listened. Like we had like, not, not exaggerating, like the most listeners we had was seven people one day. So that you would count, you had to log on. So you could see and we, me and my friend Grani were like, oh my God, seven. But we like went and did it because that's what I wanted to do. So then I didn't, I didn't really know how to do it. I didn't have any like industry connections. I didn't know anyone who worked in any sort of creative industry apart from my brother's girlfriend who worked in graphic design and unfortunately not Radio One. <laughs> so I just applied everywhere. Like I applied to ITV, Channel 4, BBC, MTV, Radio One, got a rejection letter from Radio One like, they sent me that back, which my mum framed for me one year as a Christmas present. Love your mum. Bit passive-aggressive. <laughs> um, she was like, do you remember this? I was like, oh, yeah, that was really sad. I was like... That was like a traumatic moment, mum. Cheers. Um, and she's like, oh, it's nice frame. <laughs> like, it's a nice frame. And I just was, like, adamant that I wanted to do it. And um, I ended up applying everywhere and getting a job at MTV, and I applied so, for so many jobs at MTV that when I went for the interview, I didn't even know which job it was because I'd applied for like eight. So I went and I worked there in the international creative department. Um, I was the intern, so I basically just had to get the graphic designers pens and coffee and assist in that way, and I was doing like running on TV shows, so making people cups of tea on TV shows. I handed out flyers for nightclubs because I thought, oh, maybe... Like if I get give out the flyers, I can get into the club for free and maybe I will meet, I don't know, a DJ. I, there was like sort of a vague get to London, try and do as much as you can, but no clear route to Radio 1 really. And then when I was working at MTV, do my internship, I was quite a bad intern, but they quite liked having me in the office. You were a lovely bad intern. Yeah. 
And they were like, you're so rubbish. But you're so but nice. it's so nice that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'd bring my friends into the office and they'd be like, your friend can't come to work. And I'd no. be like, can she not? And they were like, no, it's an office. Like I was 20 and I didn't really know, I didn't get it. And then, um, so they said to me like, you should do um, the telly, like you should do a screen test. And I was like, no, I don't want to do the telly. I want to do radio. And for the nine months that I worked at MTV, they were like, you should do a telly, like screen test. Or I knew someone that I'd met through working at MTV who worked at Channel 4. And she was like, you should do like E4 music. And I was like, no, I want to do the radio. So I turned down the telly for ages until MTV were like, you're rubbish and fired. So then I was like, I'll do the telly then. <laughs> that it was that or go on to Oldham. But it was, it was hard, you know, like when I left MTV, I was on the dole and in Camden and just trying to do flyering and doing doors of nightclubs. But I just knew I had to like stay in London. And I think turning down the telly for ages was maybe a bad idea, but also a good idea because it was just my, my intention was really clear. Like I didn't, I wasn't vague in, I want to broadcast. I was like, I want to host the Radio and Breakfast show. And I was precise about that from 12 to 22 or 20, yeah, 22 when I did my first telly thing. I was like, I want to do the Radio and Breakfast show. So I don't know if like the, the specificness yes, helps the goal. Do you know what I mean? Because it wasn't like, well, I don't know. I was like, I want to do that. And I liked that because it felt the freest and it felt like the naughtiest. And, you know, like it was Sarah Cox and Zoe Ball and Chris Evans. And they just felt like people who were funny, who went out, who came on and told their stories. I think it is the precision because I think that is what we now call manifesting. Manifest that, that, that word didn't, didn't, that, it, didn't, yeah. it didn't exist back Burn in the day. Byrne invented it in uh, 2005. Correct. <laughs> Alongside Oprah Winfrey and Gabby Bernstein. Um, but I think you were doing that exactly. And it is interesting how you were absolutely able to have that pinpoint focus. But as you alluded to at the start of this, it is so much harder to do as you get older. I don't know if that's because we're second guessing the pitfalls and the blockages that we're going to experience, but it gets harder to take risks and to also, I think, believe in yourself. Because no matter if you were going through self-loathing at times or not, you were still able to harness that self-belief. And if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have ended up acutely achieving that dream. You didn't do it a bit. You absolutely did the dream job that you wanted to do. So I think it is amazing when we look back and when we were younger and we did have that ability and energy to go, this is what I'm doing and no one can tell me otherwise. It gets harder. Yeah. I don't know how I did it. And when I was writing the book, like I couldn't write it. Like I couldn't sit down and focus. And I was like, surely this is the easy bit because I'm just writing about what's happened. And it was like, you know, I was spiraling again, being like, how did I do that? Go from Oldham to doing the breakfast show. And now I can't sit in my kitchen and write it. Like, do you know what I mean? You sort of, I don't know what, what happens. I don't, you, you're right, you, you, you've sort of experienced the kickbacks, so you know that they're bad. You've experienced your mum giving you a rejection letter in a frame, so you know it hurts. So I don't know, it's something that it was, when I left Radio 1, I was really trying to um, discover and explore, like, is that it? Do you have, like, one dream? Do you have, like, one ambition in your life, or can you keep evolving and changing and setting new goals, big or small, and achieving them. Did you have somewhat of a, I don't know, like a lull after Radio 1? Because, you know, you completed that dream. You, you, you did the breakfast show, and very successfully. And then when you left Radio 1 in 2021, yeah. I'm imagining that was quite a moment, because you've lived with this dream for so long. And yes, we all reach these natural expiry moments of, OK, I did that, and that felt really good, but I know it's my time to move on. You know, where did your head go after that? Not having that focus, that goal of this is where I'm headed and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be deterred by it. Well, it was like a massive part of my life. I was there 14 years, but then I probably thought about it and talked about it every day for 10 years before. So it was like 24 years of my life was either focused on Radio 1 and then when I worked there, being even more focused, obviously, because I was very professional. Um, but do you know what I mean? So you're just like talking about Radio 1 and focusing on it. And when I was there, I did a daily show for 12 of those years. So every day you're in that cycle of, of doing the same thing. And I never, ever in those 14 years, plus the 10 
thinking about it, thought about leaving. Yeah. Like, I never thought about it. And I knew I'd have to leave because Radio 1's, you know, not a radio station where you join and stay forever. Like, you don't retire there. You, you know, I knew that maybe I'd work there for, like, three years or five years, and that'd be amazing, or ten years. So you know you're always going to, like, have to leave. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't about the leaving, but it was, like, the... What I found hard was, like, the daily of just of chatting to people like I found that really hard because you'd have the show and you'd have your plan of the show but then someone could just text in and she's like oh hi I'm Claire oh my god my cat just put my shoes on or whatever and then that entire show is about Claire's cat that's put the shoes on and then you'll be in like the supermarket after and someone will talk to you and be like oh my god what about Claire's cat and you're like right yeah no so you're in this like constant conversation and People remember stuff you said like weeks ago and I'd come up to you and be like, Claire's cat, eh? And you're like, I know, so funny. And like, so that was weird. Like it's a community and like a massive conversation. And yeah, it was weird like not to be in that. But it was also quite nice not to be in that as well. But it took me a while to get used to it, to not be thinking of everything that you're doing could be content for the radio. Yeah, I know. I was doing that like all the time. Like oh my every God, single yeah. thing I'd see, I'd be like, right, Bean bags. Can I talk about bean bags tomorrow on the radio? Yeah. Because you've got three and a half hours every day to like fill. So you'd be like, right, oh my God, lights. What can we talk about? Lights. <laughs> a table. Like, you're a like, table. You're like, table. Yeah. Text him if you've got a table. Yeah. <laughs> you're like doing that constantly. So it was quite nice not to do that. But my friend gave me some really nice advice, which was he said, when you. Um, leave your job or like a tour finishes or like a big commitment finishes, change your day, completely change your routine. So if you leave your job or you're going on, you know, a sabbatical or whatever, or you're quitting Radio 1 to go and work somewhere else, change your day. He said, don't wake up and do the dog walk, the gym, then you'd go to Radio 1, then you'd do this meeting, then you'd go have your dinner. He said, because once Radio 1's gone, then you just like, you're doing the dog walk, doing the gym, and then like this massive gap where I used to do my dream. Then, mm. so he was like, totally change it. Do, change your total life in like what you want to do in the setup. Like you don't have to be in that structure again. Like, and I still now after leaving two years ago, like tonight, I'll worry about going to bed early because I think I've got the radio tomorrow morning. Yeah, that will never leave. Well, never. Why do we think we've got school tomorrow? I hate it. Why? I'm like, let me live. Please. So I actively was like, let me change and yeah. do things. So we do things like Sunday night, we're going to get dressed and go into town and go to have dinner at nine o'clock. Oh, that's too like, late for me. To like it. Because I was like, I ain't getting up tomorrow morning. No. But I like still had like this like, Fear that I was like, oh, go be up early tomorrow. I hear you. And I have that. So I had to like do like big shifts like that and sort of shake off any routine. I went to LA for a month. Oh, yeah, that was an interesting period. Yeah. There's quite a lot of wellness in that bit of the book. So much wellness. There was all sorts of the like. The city of wellness. <laughs> the city of wellness and all sorts of strange scenarios going on within wellness. Yeah, so I, I then it, I went, I, I finished radio and I was like, I want a month off. Because I'm going to do what my friend advised me of shake up. Yeah, yeah, doing yeah. Everything. And then I couldn't. I had to work from like August to Christmas. So I did my month off in January. And I thought, well, I don't want to be off in, sat in my house in January. No. Well, Misha's at work and all my friends are at work and it's dark at two. So I was like, I'll, and I had to write this. So I was like, I'll go to LA yeah. because it's, the sun's out. And I'll write a book and look out of a window and I'll be a writer and um, I found it really quite an uninspiring, lonely place. And um, yeah, I just did a lot of wellness. And I'd done like a month sober, like before. And then I was sober there and I had like a few, I think I did until like May that year or whatever. So whilst I was in LA, I was like, I'm going to be really relaxed. Yeah. And I'm going to do what everyone legally does yeah. in California and I'm going to buy some medical marijuana. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm not a weed smoker. Okay? No. So I... You're a weightlifter. I'm a weightlifter, right? Okay. So, and like, get, buying weed in LA is like, the shops look like the Apple shop. Like, it's like a luxury, mm. posh, healthy experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people are like, 
bloody chuffing it every yeah, letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's all different, like, oh, that's like a posh one. That's like the Whole Foods one. That's yeah. the organic one or whatever. So my friend who lives in LA was like, oh, I'll take you to this place. So we go in and like, you can pick which type you want and what you want it for. So I met this guy who has like an iPad and he's like, welcome. Like, how can we help today? So I was like, um, I am really anxious and not just today, just generally. Yeah. And I was like, and I'm here and I'm not drinking and I really want to feel relaxed, grounded. And I was imagining like, can you see like Seth Rogen or like Rihanna? I'm like, like, they just look like yeah. they're like cool with them. Yeah, yeah, I just want to be like Rihanna. Like Rihanna, I'm like, she can't be anxious. No. She just looks like she's in tune with herself. And I thought, it's grown in California. They all smoke it. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Well, I don't know if he was an idiot or if I should never smoke weed. Both. Both. It was like the worst experience ever. Not relaxing as no, you would imagine. It was, I've, it was like, it was like, you know when they show someone like in a film having like a bad experience mm. on acid? It was like, that, it was that. Wow. And it was like a Sunday and I went and sat on the roof where we were staying. We stayed, we rented this like a little apartment and um, I thought I'll go up, take my laptop and the, the weed they like, I don't know how to roll a joint, so they roll it, like it comes pre-made. It was in a beautiful like flowered box with a magnetic oh. Oh, that can't, that, nothing can go wrong with that. And it flowers in it, lavender, dried wow. inside. So I was like, great, it's bad fun, so bad. So I had a bit and I was like, right, and I was like, it's not really doing anything. So I was like, right, it's just, <laughs> just blaze this. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so bad and I entered and I think it was anxiety and I think it was stress and I think it was jet lag. And I think, I don't know what it was. And, and marijuana. And marijuana. <laughs> but I think like maybe when people who are smoking it and look happy, maybe they're in a really chilled, relaxed state. Mm. And maybe they're not like really anxious from like leaving their dream job. Yeah. And I've just fil been filming for five months and I've got jet lag. And now we're under pressure to write this book that we <laughs> do three weeks ago. So I, I was like, I think I was in like a stressed, bad place and I had it and I went like under. And it was really bad. And I'm like joking, but it was, it was really, really scary. And it was like full-blown psychosis to the point of having to ring like 911. And Mish was like freaking out. Like he'd not smoked it. He was like, I came down from the roof and I was like, like the floor was all like moving. Oh, no. Like I didn't know, I didn't recognize Mish. Like I thought it was a different man in there. It was really bad. Edward Scissorhands. Really Edward Scissorhands. So he's like panicking because like, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And so he was ringing 999. And I was like, wrong country, no, mate. 911. And he was like, what? And then he was going 119. So I was like, you're trying to trick me. And he was like, no, you've just come down from the roof and you're acting all and you're crazy. You're paranoid. So anyway, so he calls them and calls them and he's like, my boyfriend has done this, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, has he taken any drugs? And he's like, yeah, marijuana. And they're like, no, like drugs. And they're like, no, he smoked a split. And the woman on the phone was like, right. <laughs> We're not coming We're not going to gonna send an ambulance because that's not a medical emergency. But it lasted for like hours and hours and hours. And it was really scary. I really hated it. And, um, I was like, I've got to go to the hospital. Because I was like, I'd had, a, I'd had like a really bad panic attack once before in my life, which resulted in me having to go to the hospital. And I was like, fearing that, like if you've had a bad one, if one starts brewing, you're like, well, that's gonna happen. I'm gonna go to the hospital. So then it sort of exacerates. And I was like, oh my God, this is gonna happen. So that I've just got to go. So that, that a doctor can be like, you're fine. So as we go in there, it's getting worse and worse and worse, getting there. And when I was in there, Mish said, I'm just going to ring Nadia, who's my yoga teacher, who now has moved to LA. And she said, let me just ring her. And she was like, babe, get out of there. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I just need to, she was like, first of all, breathe. Yeah. Breathe and get out of the stressful American emergency Very expensive. Room. Very expensive. She was like, yeah, don't emergency your credit room. card and just breathe. Mm. And she like, talk, like talked me out of it and I like breathed myself out of it. 
with the help of Nadia, Yoga Nadia, God bless her. Yoga Nadia. Anna, Yoga Nadia, as she's forever called. And then, um, yeah, ruled out from my wellness to-do list in LA, marijuana. So I thought, let's try like spirulina next time. That would be a safer bet. Yeah. So I was like, God, maybe I'm not meant to be in the wellness whilst I'm well. The chapter is like, maybe it actually inspired a lot of that chapter because I was like, well, if I'm not happy, like drunk, and I'm not happy, like relaxed, like where am I? Like, maybe I'm not meant to be relaxed. Maybe I'm meant to be anxious. Maybe I'm meant to be, a, maybe I'm not Rihanna, like this relaxed person. Maybe I'm what? uptight. Maybe I'm uptight. And Nadia was like, maybe you are. Like, maybe that's who you are and that's all right. So it was, it was a useful, traumatic, but useful process in going through that because it just made me sit and think about like who I am and what works for someone might not work for me. Yes, I think it's very important when we're having this conversation to acknowledge that because a lot of time we can then turn on ourselves and go, well, this works for them and they're so relaxed and so chilled out whenever they do yoga or whatever. And what I would hate any of this to be at this festival or anything we're doing is you've got to do this and then you're going to feel amazing. I think the biggest part is experimenting and working out what works for you. And, it, and it's not marijuana for you, not my darling. Me, no. It's not. Um, but I think it's a really important chat and um, I urge you to read the book because it's, it's not only funny, but it's also so poignant and there's loads of lovely moments in there. Um, there's loads about your lovely dad as well that I loved reading. It's a really beautiful book. Um, and I want to say a massive thank you to you for coming to the Happy Place Festival and being a part of it. Please, everyone, show your appreciation for Nick Henshaw. Oh, Nick, I had so much fun with you doing that chat. Thank you so much. I mean, I always do. Thank you for coming to the festival. I know you were darting off back to London afterwards, so your time was so appreciated by us all. Nick's book, Soft Lad, is out in paperback now. Oh, and he did a truly brilliant little roundup of his day at the festival on Instagram, complete with a voiceover, narrating everything, including shoving me in a whole bunch of ferns, which was an interesting twist to my day. Do go and check it out for a little behind-the-scenes look. We're on Instagram too, at Happy Place Official. I'd love to chat with you there. We'll be live from the Happy Place Festival in Tatton Park again next week, and I'll be chatting to a man who is the king of vibes who could it be i'll leave you to mull over that one until next week i want to say a huge thank you to nick to the producer anushka tate at rethink audio and to you i bloody love you biggest thanks to you gorgeous lot are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns